Good evening, everyone, and uh, welcome to some of you. Welcome back to the second part of the uh, Auguste Comte Memorial Lectures um, on Mobile for Development, Human-Centered Design, and Global Justice. I'm Alex Vorhoover. I'm the chair. I'm in the philosophy department uh, here. But the, uh, the main man this evening is Professor Joshua Cohen. Um, I won't do the full introduction that I did yesterday, just to say that um, he's a professor in uh, ethics at uh, Stanford, uh, also teaches and uh, runs a, um, a, a research center on liberation technologies, and uh, works at Apple in the division Apple University. Uh, yesterday, um, we got a, a whirlwind uh, tour of the notion of mobile for development and the idea of human-centered design. And today, part two of the lectures will focus on questions relating what we heard yesterday and the projects discussed to issues in global justice. So uh, let's welcome Professor Cohen back to the stage. So as I said last night, um, you know, substance drives uh, presentational style. So the presentation last night was all PowerPoint. There were, uh, I think, 250 slides. Um, tonight, it's zero slides. It's, you know, in for a penny, in for a pound. So it's either nothing or all. So nothing tonight. This is going to be an old-fashioned, uh, oh, I've got to put this on. Yeah. OK. Here we are. You didn't know that I wasn't mic because I have a loud voice. But anyway, it's going to be recorded, so i got to have this mic on. Okay, so there's going to be no slides, uh, old-fashioned philosophical type talk. So in the first lecture last night, as those of you who were here last night know, lecture on mobile for development meets human-centered design, I concluded by describing three projects. Um, Emaji, Safe Matare, and Nishauri. All three, as you remember if you were here, use mobile technology and all aim to address some basic human needs in ways that unlock opportunities. The projects, as I explained last night, also grow from an effort to address an intellectual and practical question about mobile for development. They're located in a place, Nairobi places, Nairobi's informal settlements. They draw on a method, human-centered design, and they are built on a network of relationships. They're also, and I didn't emphasize this in the first lecture, also animated by a hope. The hope that animates is to exploit the extraordinary and entirely unpredicted diffusion of mobile technology which is now part of the technological vernacular in much of the world, to exploit it to address some basic challenges for human development, including, in particular, income, health, education, and personal safety. More simply put, the animating hope is to use this technology to address some basic injustices, thus to make the world at least slightly more just. Now, why talk about justice at all? I'm going to resist my philosopher's in predisposition to answer by presenting a theory of justice. The projects I described don't grow from a particular theory, nor do you need 
a theory of justice or a model of an ideally just society to have well-founded confidence in judgments of justice and injustice and to act responsibly on the basis of that confidence. Well-founded confidence, for example, that there's something unjust about the costly access to water of uncertain quality for people who live in the informal settlements. Amartya Sen has developed this point about intellectual confidence and practical responsibility at some considerable length in his recent book on the idea of justice. I agree with Sen, though I remain unconvinced that this point is at all controversial. In particular, it's not, Sen's insistence to the contrary notwithstanding, a point of disagreement between Sen and John Rawls. Rawls's method of reflective equilibrium with its emphasis on considered convictions about justice, assumes that well-founded confidence need not be, and ordinarily is not, the result of any theory or model of the ideally just society. But while a theory of justice isn't necessary, it'll help to provide some explanation of why and in what ways the projects address issues of justice. So I'll say then that the projects aim to address issues in justices because they aim to improve access to some basic goods that serve some fundamental human interests, interests that are not now well addressed and that could be much better addressed without setting back comparably important interests of others. Moreover, if these interests were better served, some people in the informal settlements would have more expansive opportunities improved chances to use their capacities in pursuit of their aspirations. The projects that I described are not humanitarian efforts to alleviate the suffering and misery of aggrieved victims. When I spend time in Matara and Kibera, I don't see suffering or dislocated victims living in abject misery, despite the numbers on poverty and basic services that I reported last night. Scott Fitzgerald said, the rich are different from us, and Hemingway reportedly replied, yes, they have more money. I think the people I deal with in Kibera and Matare are different from us. They have much less money and other resources, including public services, which means that they're constantly burdened by decisions that we don't even need to think about, like, for example, where to find some clean water. And they live, as I emphasized last night, in places that are not only pretty poor, but also pretty poorly governed. That said, their agents, trying to make something of the one life they have, under circumstances that make that painfully simple and always challenging aspiration particularly hard to achieve. So I see the projects as ultimately about expanding opportunities for people whose life chances are now profoundly restricted by circumstance. To use the language that's now favored in some philosophical circles, they are about expanding capabilities. I prefer the old-fashioned term opportunities. Um, and putting the terminology aside, I don't know, know that any of them will have the effect of expanding opportunities, or if you prefer, capabilities. But that's the guiding idea and the hope. 
But as I said at the opening of the first lecture, the nature of the work that I described provokes a series of large challenges. And I wish I had a tape of last night's dinner, because then I, you would hear the challenges, which uh, very much overlap with the ones uh, that I'm going to discuss. Provokes, it provokes a series of large challenges that open out onto social, scientific, and philosophical issues. And in this second lecture, I'm going to explore these challenges. In exploring them, my aim, to reiterate, is not to present and defend a theory. I, I have no objection to theories. I've spent a lot of my uh, professional life developing them. But I'm simply reporting on my purposes here. And the purpose is, in the first instance, practical. I'm trying to answer some questions that I have about the kind of work that I described last night. I described the animating hope. And in essence, the practical question is, is that animating hope a reasonable hope? Or does it require an arguably culpable inattention to the way of the world? I describe that question as practical because it expresses a concern about whether work of this kind is a reasonable expenditure of time and other resources. And I think that a Comtean blend of social science and philosophy may be able to help to address these questions. So turning to the challenges then, I summarized them last night at the beginning, and I want now to remind you of that summary. And they run, as some of you will remember, as follows. That the projects I have described and kindred efforts are exploitative of the people they aim to assist that even if they're not exploitative, this is all the lawyer st style of arguing in the alternative. OK, they're not, even if they're not exploitative, they're self-defeating. And even if they're not exploitative or self-defeating, they're futile anyway. And even if they're not exploitative or self-defeating or futile anyway, they are in any case morally misdirected. Misdirected morally because people from wealthy countries ought to focus their efforts on the domestic societies of the countries they are from. Now, these four challenges partially overlap with what Albert O. Hirschman has called the rhetoric of reaction, the traditional rhetoric of the political right, which represents efforts at improvement as an unhappy mix of the self-defeating, the futile, and the disastrous. But I observe these partial parallels without wishing to draw any rhetorical advantage from the observation. I take the four challenges, exploitative, self-defeating, futile, morally misdirected, I take them seriously. I hear them from friends and colleagues. Some are suggested by the powerful criticisms of aid in Easterly's important work expressed in suspicions about global moralism, expressed by David Reif, among many others, and by a natural suspicion born of the proximity of high-minded moralism to hubris. Others are suggested by the focus on basic intuition, institutions, basic institutions, the basic structure of society in Rawlsian political philosophy, and in the institutionalism that defines much work in political economy. For example, Daron Asimoglu and James Robinson's important new work, Why Nations Fail. So I feel the need to answer these objections in order to justify the work. 
And in fact, I should say uh, that the contours of the work that I'm pursuing have been shaped by these challenges. I'm not sure whether the answers are any good. In the end, I'll leave that for us all to discuss and to judge. So, according to the first challenge then, Work of the kind that I described last night, work of the kind that's exemplified by the projects Emaji, the water market project in Kibera, Nishauri, the sexual counseling project in Matare, and Safe Matare, the personal safety project in uh, Matare as well. Work of that kind is exploitative of the people and the organizations it aims to work with. And I'll begin with a more focused and granular uh, version of the objection and then relax some of the details as I explore its force and along the way I'll tell you what I have in mind by exploitation. So getting very granular as I mentioned last night I teach a course jointly to mostly Stanford graduate students. As you might guess these students are extraordinarily privileged and very ambitious. Many of the students in the course attend Stanford Law School and Business School. By privileged, I don't mean that they are in the 1%. Most of them aren't. But they are privileged in being at this fancy university, Stanford. And they're ambitious. Ambitious with a reputation for, among other things, assiduous resume building. And one way to build your resume, as you can infer from Ken Oletta's recent New Yorker article about Stanford, one way to do that is to take courses in design thinking at Stanford's D School, particularly courses that use design thinking to address ambitious challenges, however successful or unsuccessful you may happen to be in addressing those challenges. Ends up on your resume anyway. So what happens when these privileged and ambitious students offer to work on projects with very strapped organizations in very strapped communities. More pointedly, and here turning the finger of suspicion back on the real culprits, like me, what happens when Stanford faculty offer our students the opportunity to work with these organizations and in these communities, and more particularly, offer these organizations the opportunity to work with us and our students? According to the objection, uh, this offer is hard to refuse. Hard to refuse because even if the organizations may think that the students will consume a bunch of their time and waste most of the time that they consume, uh, they still will find it of use to do it. Well, why would they waste their time? Because most of the students don't know much ex ante certainly about Matare and Kibera, and they may well disappear when the course is over. We make resources available to continue projects once the course is done, but there's no obligation to continue, and several promising projects from our course didn't continue because the students decided to move on. People in the community may share, served by the organizations, may share these understandable suspicions about the projects, they may have observed that Kibera already has more NGOs and it has toilets. Nevertheless, some of them will feel pressured to open, that's true, uh, some of them will feel pressured to open their lives to the project teams. 
Now, you might ask why, given these assumptions about waste of time, would the organization say yes at all? Well, because one thing they can be reasonably sure of is some flow of resources. And if the collaboration works well enough this time around, they may be able to get some future flows of resources as well. And those resources may be a net gain for the organization, even if they come at a considerable cost of time and organizational energy. As I mentioned last night, Makmende, Safe Matari, the public safety project in Matari, did, as I emphasized, pay the escorts in the failed experiment. And that apparently was a large benefit for the participants. Similarly, Nishauri, the sexual counseling project, will pay survey respondents. And the organization we collaborate with, Matari Youth Sports Association, can take some indirect credit for the compensation. In fact, that organization has been appealing to its involvement with this project to respond to charges from its former largest donor of indifference to sexual harassment. So they've gotten some benefit. When we had a public project launch in Kibera in late March for Emmaji, we, that is on the Stanford side, spent $2,000 on the launch. It was a good event. There were 1,000 people there. Very nice t-shirts. We bought 150 t-shirts. And the money may well have been well invested in terms of the long-term success publicity of the project. But, and here's the point about exploitation, arguably much greater benefits flow to the assiduous resume builders who already have lots of opportunities that they can choose from than to the organizations who have limited opportunities and thus have trouble saying no, even if the net benefit is small and much smaller than the benefit that goes to the assiduous resume builders. Now, if you think of the participants in such projects as assiduous resume builders, then you'll be rightly suspicious about whether the projects will go anywhere. The resume builders will walk away with an improved resume, even if the project goes nowhere, and, um, and even if the organizations themselves are not in it for project success, but just for a flow of resources. In 2003, The Onion ran a spoof about how volunteers at the Pike Street Salvation Army have grown to hate college application patter Justice Justin Malveaux, 17. Quote, it's not that Justin doesn't work hard, because he does, said Carla Perkins, 44, weekend coordinator at the downtown Seattle soup kitchen. He does whatever you ask of him, and he's pleasant and polite always complimenting everyone. Still, I can't stand the little Stanford application padding fucker. <laughs> it's from The Onion. Um, so suspicions about, now, suspicions about the, as this example indicates, suspicions about the intentions of resume builders have powerful epistemic importance in predicting the success or failure of projects. But apart from that epistemic importance, I think we should put aside these uh, suspicions about the intentions of participants. That's partly because I'm not sure that the suspicions are generally well-founded, either on the Stanford side or the collaborating organization side. But even if they are well-founded, the worries about intentions are not really what's at issue in assessing the serious charge of exploitation. 
And I say that partly because I accept the philosophical thesis associated with Tim Scanlon and Judy Thompson, that intentions are not relevant except epistemically to the moral rightness of conduct. As applied to the issue under discussion, what matters to the objectionable exploitativeness of a relationship is not what the participants are intending to do in the relationship or intending to get from it, but what they are doing and getting. So in particular, the relations may be exploitative with our teams getting the lion's share of the benefits from an agreement with a highly constrained organization even if their intentions are good, and correspondingly, the relations may be unexploitative, even if the aim is mere resume building. Uh, let me be clear about this. If you're thinking about pursuing a joint project, you better have a good sense of the intentions of the participants, because those intentions have an important bearing on the likelihood of success. But the real issue about exploitation is what the flow of benefits is and what the chances of success are. Intentions are a more captivating topic of conversation, but what matters are not the intentions in and of themselves. And I should add, before moving away from intentions and discussing exploitation, uh, that the intentions may be less than entirely pure on the organizational side as well. They say they're interested in exploring new projects that may bring real benefit to people in their communities, but they may be just in it for the flow of benefits to an enhanced reputation of the organizations. To make the point less granular and less speculative, more granular, less speculative, I'll observe that, on, that, that at those, those t-shirts that we bought for the M. Maji launch event, on the back they say, Huna Maji, Tafuta Kapitia, Kwasimu, you don't have water, search through the phone. The front says, Umande Trust, M. Maji, Stanford University. Stanford image. If your interpretive prism is the hermeneutics of suspicion, you will read this textual t-shirt as an effort by the organization to build its reputation and expand its resources by positioning itself alongside a very rich and famous institution. But intentions aside, is the relationship exploitative? Do we have a very uneven flow of benefits resulting from an offer by a better endowed group with surplus opportunities that could easily take its business elsewhere to people with very limited opportunities, an offer that they can turn down, but that it is very hard to refuse despite the burdens they take on of assisting our students. Now, one tempting answer is that there's no worry here unless you are objectionably paternalistic because the organizations make the judgment that it's best to say yes, conversation done. Members of the organization are rational adults who see some benefit in the relationship, and they are right to see the benefit. But as um, one social scientist, not Comte, but Marx, observed 150 years ago, rational choice is fully compatible with exploitation. What matters for exploitation are the background conditions from which the agreement is reached, the mutual mutually beneficial Pareto improvement from grossly unequal starting points may still be exploitative. The issue is whether there is some sort of unfair advantage that our better endowed side is taking of the less well-positioned organizations and people in the communities they work in. And that could be true. And in many relations of the kind that I've uh, discussed last night, there probably is exploitation. 
But with ours, I don't think so. And the reason why goes to the heart of the organizations we work with, and that's why we have chosen them. They've been around for a long time. In the case of MISA, for more than 25 years. They have reasonably stable sources of funding, qualification about MISA that we could discuss later. They have a substantial staff and a record of innovation. So they're antecedently interested in experimental projects. What all this means is that they don't need to collaborate with us. They are not, as the exploitation challenge might suggest, agreeing from some posture of supine desperation. Moreover, while no one knows whether the projects will bring real benefit, say, easier access to clean water with Emaji, and while there's no assurance that the projects will move forward, even if the organization wants them to, the benefits they see from the collaboration are a matter of having a chance for innovative, successful projects that fit with their mission. When the executive director of MISA presented at a conference in South Africa a few months ago, he presented Nishauri, the Texting for Sexual Counseling Project, as an innovative way to achieve the common purposes of soccer for development organizations devoted to kicking out AIDS. And at the Emmaji launch, there was much celebration of the efforts of Umande Trust to find innovative ways to address issues of water and sanitation in Kibera. So if the projects succeed, the case for exploitation seems unfounded. Now, as this last remark suggests, I th what really underlies the charge of exploitation, I think, is the simple suspicion, which may be well-founded, that these projects are not likely to work. And the basis of that suspicion is something like this. How could a group of students, or anyone else, who don't have a very granular understanding of a place, and who may be blinded to reality by their good intentions, how could they do something genuinely innovative and effective in the short compass of a course? And that's a good question. But it has an answer, and the answer has five elements. First, most organizations, and certainly the ones we work with, lack the bandwidth for innovation. It's not that they're constantly searching for and testing new ideas and would already have found the good ones if they were out there. They are focused on core programs. But what's also special about the organizations we work with is that they welcome the exploration of new possibilities, which they lack the capacity to generate and test themselves. They share the experimentalist spirit. Second. There is value in the disciplined and imaginative exploration of user-centered possibilities that you get from human-centered design. I can't prove this to you. This is the process that I described last night. I can't prove this to you. I can't prove it to myself. Because if I could, that follows. If I could prove it to you, anyway, it's a point about proof. Never mind. Can't prove it, period. To you, to me, to can't prove it. But I think the process with its iterative mix of ethnography, imagination, and fast, focused prototyping and testing gives you something more than you anticipate. And I'm repeatedly struck by the surprising mix of creativity and, for lack of a better word, groundedness that emerges from the process. Third, what comes from the course that we do is the kernel of a project, 
not a program up and running in final form. As I said last night, it's a logic of discovery, not of justification. Fourth, the relationship with the organizations keeps the projects tethered to the realities of the users. And finally, fifth, I don't accept that the res participants are assiduous resume builders on our side and assiduous resource accumulators on the Nairobi side. Maybe that reveals my naivete. I prefer to think it reveals an unwillingness to yield to a very tempting and common cynicism. In any case, I emphasize that my answer to this first challenge turns on my judgment about the virtues of the specific method of human-centered design that we use and on the relationship intensity of the project. And so my answer to this question about exploitation may not extend to comparable projects done by other organizations that don't use the method of human-centered design and do think that relationships with groups on the ground in the place where you're working don't really matter that much. So the exploitation charge may sound generally, but I don't think it sounds with us because of the way we've designed what we do. So let's suppose then that the, the exploitation of the vulnerable, while a real possibility that needs to be considered and not just considered but avoided, is not a compelling worry in the work that I've described. There's a real problem, but the problem can be addressed with appropriately structured collaborations. The details matter. Still, the projects might be self-defeating. To explain what I have in mind, let me return to the case of Emmaji, the mobile water project I described last night. Purpose of Emmaji is to reduce the time people spend searching for water while also making it easier to find clean water also establishing a more uniform price of water, law of one price, and maybe reducing that price. The importance of easy access to clean water is obvious, but just to underscore, the issues at stake for buyers include health, avoiding cholera and diarrhea, significant cause of childhood mortality. They also involve the expenditure of time searching for water, as well as psychic and physical energy carrying a 20-liter jerry can, and financial costs. The reasons for being concerned about these issues are obvious, but at least part of the concern, as I said earlier, is about expanding opportunities. A world with easier access to lower cost and more reliably clean water is a world in which people have greater opportunities to spend their time figuring out and doing what matters to them. Easy availability of clean water is so fundamental to creating decent opportunities that there is arguably a right of access to clean water, which is how Umande Trust, the organization we collaborate with, presents the issue. But this observation raises a concern. Here's the concern. I mean, if there is a right of access to clean water, that right should arguably be secured by the state not by private organizations that are working to perfect the water market by addressing problems of asymmetric information in that market. And that's so for two reasons, instrumental and expressive. Instrumental, because the state has the capacity to be a more certain guarantor of universal access to clean water than a private program. And expressive, because the state's assurance of access provides the kind of public statement or affirmation of entitlement and the institutional apparatus of agencies and courts appropriate to a right. 
Now, if these claims about the importance of the role of the state are correct, then a privately provided program to improve access faces two problems. First, having goods provided by private organizations, even if nonprofits, shifts popular expectations away from the rights framework. Their private provision is arguably intention, arguably intention, with the idea of an entitlement to provision unless there is a strong regulatory, public regulatory background. Moreover, private provision may weaken the state. If basic goods are privately secured, then the state is not and is not seen as a reliable provider of basic public goods. And that may convey the message that it's not worthy of allegiance, support, or respect, all the more because the goods are providable. It's just that other goods organizations are doing the provision. But by reducing expectations of the state, such programs may threaten the provision of other basic public goods, like roads and safety, that the state needs to provide. Moreover, whatever the merits of Emmaji, it's unlikely to increase the supply of water. It simply aims to reduce the costs of finding what there is and increase the chances that it will be clean. Important aims, but they accept the current limits on water supply instead of pressing for increased public supply by bringing more pipes into the informal settlements in the name of a universal right of access. Now, if the state isn't providing universal and easy access to clean water, and in Nairobi it is not, it's easy to feel the pressure to find alternative ways to alleviate these very real burdens. And this pressure is especially compelling when, as in the case of the informal settlements in Nairobi, it's hard to see how water could be regularly provided in the near term because it is simply not feasible to add sufficient piping and plumbing into the densely crowded informal settlements, 200,000 people living in 640 acres in Kibera. In fact, Kenya has a program for upgrading informal settlements, but it doesn't include the informal settlements in Nairobi because they're better off than informal, informal settlements elsewhere in the country. Now, because of these very real, immediate, practical difficulties, it's easy to think, though not obviously right to think, that worries about rights being vindicated by states and about longer-term consequences for political order are too abstract, too theoretical, too speculative to stand in the way of private efforts now to reduce search costs even if those efforts may have the undesirable downstream consequences just noted. These are familiar dilemmas about private and public, rights and policies, short-term and long-term. And Maji simply illustrates the points. Now, in response, I'll agree for the sake of discussion that water is a right, that states are the chief vindicators of rights, that states are essential to the provision of basic public goods, and that the way water ought to be provided is not by a private organization working to protect a private water market. In short, I think the objection has real force. Nevertheless, the theme recurs, the details matter, and I think the design of Emmaji blunts some of the concern about self-defeatingness. 
First of all, while all our projects are done in collaboration with private organizations, their success depends on engagement with the state. In the case of Emmaji, the provision of water in Nairobi is and remains the state's responsibility. All the water in Kibera comes from the Nairobi Water Company, and everyone knows that. Moreover, most of the schemes for testing water quality require support from the Nairobi Water Company. Similarly, in the case of Safe Matare, public safety involves collaboration with an official, the district officer. So these projects do not absolve the state of its responsibility and seek some purely private alternative. The objection oversimplifies the terrain. Furthermore, while Emmaji focuses on improving the current private functioning of the water market, Umande Trust, our collaborator, itself takes a strong position about the right to clean water. This is a quote from their mission statement. Umande Trust is a nascent rights-based agency which believes that modest resources strategically invested in support of community-led initiatives can significantly improve access to water and sanitation for all. We seek to be an instrument of transformation by building on the resourcefulness of individuals, groups, and coalitions of communities to engage with state and non-state actors to protect their dignity and to demand equitable, accountable, and efficient services. What Umande Trust does not do is let this rights-based conception of how water ought to be provided stand in the way of improving its actual provision under a system of partially private ordering. What matters principally to vindicating the right is a progressive realization of universal easy access, not the instruments of that realization. And my hesitation about the force of this objection about self-defeating this comes in part from Omande Trust's enthusiastic involvement as a human rights organization in the project. Maybe what they think is that public goods may be better provided and rights better vindicated even in the longer term through private-public collaboration. In any case, they're not concerned for the reasons I've mentioned about a self-defeating dynamic. If that's for me, I'll be done in about a half hour. <laughs> Finally, last point on this, we ought to be more cautious about adopting the static political view implicit in the criticism. Suppose the project is very successful. Suppose that it has the desired and intended effects of reducing search costs and financial costs while also improving quality and health. Why assume that people will then be satisfied with the improved functioning of a, of a now privately organized water market that still features much more costly water than in the public system in central Nairobi. It seems just as likely, anyway not implausible, that one of the consequences of a successful project may be new expectations and demands. What the project would show is that improvements are possible which serves to undermine a paralyzing political defeatism. Now, I want to be careful here not to overclaim. I'm not asserting, not even suggesting, that the project is the best strategy of political mobilization about water in the informal settlements or the best way to trigger such mobilization. I have no idea what the best way is, nor, so far as I can tell, does anybody else. I mean only to observe that efforts to reduce search costs and price while also improving water quality 
or focused improvements in personal safety or health information may have a mobilizing effect as beneficiaries and third-party observers see the benefits of concerted action and understand the case against the defeatist sensibility that expects no improvement or that assumes that progress simply rolls in on the wheels of inevitability. So I don't see, I uh, think this point about exploitation, yeah, real challenge, probably true in some cases. I don't think it's true of the projects we're doing. Self-defeating could be, you undermine the basic provider of rights and public goods, could be a problem. I don't think it's true given the way we've organized the work that we're doing. That brings me to a third concern, concern about futility. Uh, and this is a concern not just about the projects we're doing, but also likely a concern about any that rely on human-centered design as a process of hypothesis formation, a logic of discovery. Uh, and the concern is that the method of discovery works by reducing the stakes. The projects are born cautious, modest. In part, this reflects the special time constraints we work under. The course we do lasts 10 weeks. But the issue is more intrinsic and goes to the method of human-centered design. Design projects are anchored in specific users, a person with a need. To be sure, the needs of the user you design for may be more generic, and the aim may be to address some more generic need effectively by focusing on a particular person. But the design process doesn't focus on generality. Moreover, the strengths of the design process are that it forces you to focus on identified users and needs, not on the systemic constraints they are under. So for example, user-centered design is not going to provide much insight on the best way to increase the growth rate and create jobs, or the best trade or macroeconomic policy. Human-centered design is more like designing an application than a platform. It's not focused on the basic structure, on the major institutions of a social and political order. In this respect, its focus is much like the focus of field experiments, the field experiments pioneered by Michael Kremer, Abhijit Banerjee, Esther Duflo, and others that now play a large role in development economics. Field experiments, randomized control trials, RCTs, use random assignments to control and treatment groups to support causal inference. But some things are hard to randomize on. For example, democracy, rule of law, macroeconomic policy, the existence of markets. So these are not plausibly topics for RCTs. As a result, the experimentalist studies policy variation, charging for bed nets or giving them away for free, providing fertilizer right after the harvest or right before the harvest, providing information about best agricultural practices or about civic responsibilities, or maybe very focused institutional variation, reserved seats for women in local councils in India. As a result, the field experimental approach has been accused of having excessively modest ambitions, of focusing attention on issues that can be studied experimentally and thus taking basic institutions for granted which is arguably a very bad idea when it comes to alleviating poverty. Now, this concern about modesty can be developed along different lines, but to fix ideas, I'll focus on what I'll refer to as the institutionalist objection. Intuitively, the institutionalist emphasizes politics, not policy. 
The idea is that basic institutions, private property, markets, democracy, rule of laws, families, are structures that create incentives and opportunities. These structures are relatively persistent, and they dominate outcomes. Their effects, as Rawls put it, are profound and present from the start. The thrust of this view is well stated by Asimoglu and Robinson in their book, Why Nations Fail. They say, economic institutions shape economic incentives, the incentives to become educated, to save and invest, to innovate and adopt new technologies, and so on. It's the political system that determines what institutions people live under, and it's the political institutions, excuse me, it's the political process that determines what institutions people live under, and it's political institutions that determine how this process works. According to the institutionalist objection, then, the source of mass poverty in low-income countries is not geography and climate or culture or lack of knowledge. Instead, and more fundamentally, low-income countries suffer from bad institutions. The central feature of bad institutions is that they empower people who are principally concerned about preserving their privileges, uh, room for improvement in human well-being and opportunity within poor institutions is thus very confined because it's not generically in the interest of those elites to do what's needed to improve the general welfare. Moreover, policy experiments that happen and that do provide real benefits are always in danger of being upended by the power of elites within bad institutions. In the Asimoglu-Robinson formulation, within extractive institutions, with power concentrated in an elite that can prevent the disruption of its privileges. Bad institutions block development and are associated with extreme inequality, and those two conditions are mutually reinforcing, because unlocking development requires creative destruction, which means upending privilege. Now, I don't want to dispute the importance of institutions. I agree with Sen a leading critic of the, an exclusively institutionalist focus in theories of justice, Sen, who says that any theory of justice needs to assign a large role to institutions. That said, I have four replies to the institutionalist objection to projects suited in user, uh, rooted in user-centered design. First, on any plausible view about institutional constraints, those constraints leave lots of room for good and bad policy variation, and that's true of good as well as bad institutions. Part of the reason for decent policy outcomes sometimes within bad institutions, a point made in the large literature under, on politics under authoritarianism, including the literature on electoral authoritarianism, is that political elites and authoritarian systems can't be completely indifferent to popular support. Democracy and pluralism institutionalize that concern about popular support in a particular way, but the concern is not confined to pluralistic democratic institutions. So consider as an example Suharto's Indonesia. For reasons that I won't explore, Suharto in 1973 decided that it was important to spend an influx of oil shock revenue on schools. The money was focused in areas where schools were most needed, where there were fewest schools, and the results were good for the long-term earnings of Indonesians who received the additional education. According to Esther Duflo, each additional year of primary schooling from the new schools yielded an 8% wage increase. This is a consequential policy decision, even if made under awful institutions and brutal political rule. 
In addition to entering this abstract observation about the policy space under bad institutions, I should add that Kenya is, as I intimated last night, an institutionally complicated story, and in some ways a promising place for decent policy. There's a very large IT sector, ambitious ideas about innovation. Constitutional reform in 2010 won very wide support, and it's going to result in considerable policy de decentralization with lots more room for uh, experimentation. To be sure, there's a high degree of corruption, as I mentioned last night, extreme inequality, highly ethnicized politics, arguably increasingly ethnicized, and a tradition of electoral violence that may explode in the next elections with even greater force than in 2008. But whatever we may think of the policy space and authoritarian political systems, generally it seems clear that Kenya has some open policy space. A second response is that the objection, the institutionalist objection, mistakenly assumes that small changes yield small results, a questionable premise. One of the most striking discoveries of the field experimental work in development economics, and we were discussing this earlier, is due to Michael Kremer and Ted Miguel. In a now classic paper, Kremer and Miguel showed that the most cost-effective way to keep kids in school is not to pay their parents or to provide them with uniforms, but to establish a program of deworming. Deworming is, a reasonably, is reasonably effective in combating in, uh, intestinal worms, which in turn is good for keeping kids in school, for cognitive ability, and for lifetime income, also positive externalities for the untreated. And there are now national policies of deworming in several countries. Now, it turns out that children who are given deworming pills for two years, better nourished thereby for two years because the worms aren't eating food, earn 20% more as adults than children who are given deworming pills for one year. What this means is that for an investment of $1.36, you get a lifetime return of $3,269, which is equivalent to the income gain that you, run from, that you get from running 4.5% growth for four years, which is no mean feat. Talk to policymakers in the EU or in the United States. Or consider a program uh, pro that provided rural Rajasthani mothers a kilogram of lentils each time their children received one stage of an immunization course and a set of plates when the full course was completed. Program raised immunization rates from 5% to 38%. In Kenya, my colleague Pascaline Dupas did an experiment, I mentioned it last night, in which teenagers were given information about the relative risks of HIV infection by AIDS, by age. In particular, that older men were much more likely to be infected with HIV than younger men, thus a particularly bad risk as sexual partners. The result was a 65% reduction in teen pregnancies by older men and no increase in pregnancies from younger men. In each of these cases, we have small interventions with significant impacts. Third, the institutionalist objection focuses on the effects of major institutions characterized in sweeping terms, democracy, market, rule of law. Asimoglu and Robinson say, quote, to be inclusive, economic institutions must feature secure private property, an unbiased system of law, and a provision of public services that provides a level playing field in which people can exchange and contract. It must also permit the entry of new businesses and allow people to choose their careers." End quote. But there are endless, endless varieties of these institutions, and the same for bad institutions. 
with different particular ways of organizing elections, public discussion, property, banks, parties, and accountability. And these details arguably matter. Matter in the relevant sense of being consequential for well-being and opportunities. Moreover, such low-level institutions are within the scope of the experimentalism that animates design thinking. Emaji works within the water market, but may change it from a fragmented to a more integrated market, potentially with consequences for price and quality. A descendant of Mahmende, the failed public safety project, might change the local institutions of public safety. You need to worry about incentive compatibility in such projects, but there is space for incentive-compatible, focused, institutional variations. And finally, fourth, and here I echo an observation I made earlier, successful policy innovation or successful focused institutional innovation can create a political shift, a new sense of possibility, a breach in the fatalism that threatens conservative action rather than creating the sense that nothing more needs doing. So even if we agree, as I think we shouldn't, that what matters exclusively for justice are basic institutions, that other sorts of institutional or policy changes have relatively trivial effects and are always in danger of being undone, it's not obvious that more still, it's not obvious that more focused projects are misguided. Instead, they might spark efforts at the more sweeping changes that the institutionalist objection sees as required to make any difference that's genuinely worth making. So, exploitation, big problem, but I'm not, I don't think, I think we've got an answer to it. Self-defeating, big problem, sort of have an answer to it, sort of, anyway, I think this. Feudal, futile, not feudal, futile. You know, the, I don't, I don't think so. I don't think so. I know that comes as a shock, but anyway. Final objection, morally misdirected. I've described the animating purposes of the Mobile for Development projects as using a vernacular technology to expand opportunities, thus to rectify injustices. Let's assume, for the sake of argument, the projects of the kind that I've described, projects that marry design thinking with mobile for development, are promising ways to expand opportunities for people who have unjustly restricted opportunities. Assume that they are neither exploitative, nor self-defeating, nor futile. Still, it might be said that they are morally misdirected. Misdirected morally because the right place to pursue them is at home, whatever, wherever your home is. So we ought, we ought to focus our attention on projects in the United States, we, the relevant we in this, uh, like me. Uh, the projects I've described uh, are, are not, as I said, relief efforts aimed at addressing humanitarian disasters. Redirecting them would not result in massive death and destruction. So why Nairobi? Why not Newark? Newark, a city in New Jersey, with lots of troubles and a 40% rate of child poverty. Well, let me begin with two facile answers uh, that point in different directions, make easy work of a hard topic, but both are facile. The first facile answer says that opportunities are so much more restricted in Nairobi, and that means that needs are much greater 
In Nairobi's informal settlements, as I mentioned last night, 75% of the population lives below the Kenyan poverty line. Most dwellings, 80%, have no running water. There's no fire protection. Water is, you get buckets of cholera vectors. Pregnant women often don't have safe hospital deliveries. There's one toilet for every 2,000 people. This is the world where flying toilets were invented. You piss and shit in a bag and throw it out on what passes for a street. What more needs to be said? Newark has lots of troubles, but the extent and depth of the needs and of the constraints on opportunities are so much more profound in Nairobi than in Newark. But that facile answer won't do. What matters in deciding what's worth doing is not simply, obviously, the extent of the need, but the extent to which you think you can do something to enable people to meet fundamental unmet needs. And you might think that the answer to this question is obvious. And here we have a second facile answer. After all, how much good can you do in a place where you don't know much about the place, the culture, the language? I mean, outside of the informal settlements, you can speak English. Inside the informal settlements, you need to speak Kiswahili. And you don't know much about people's lives. When our Mende project team went to public meetings to discuss what was happening with the project, whether it was delivering public safety, they heard, as I mentioned last night, lots of insistent requests, requests for weapons. People needed to be armed to protect themselves. Members of the team were shocked, but maybe that's because they have no sense of the world they're designing for. The chances of doing something effective, not just where the needs are, but where the effectiveness is, are so much greater in a place you are familiar with that the greater magnitude of the needs elsewhere may be irrelevant. Now, I find it hard to evaluate the force of this objection for at least two reasons. First, while it's true that our project teams are designing for places that they are not very familiar with, they work with organizational partners that are familiar. That's essential to the work that we do, though often missing from other projects. And in the case I just mentioned, our partners, including the district officer in charge of Matare and the members of MISA, who grew up in Matare, said that they were just as surprised by the members of the Makmende team. User-centered design, even if pursued from very close up, can't assure success. As a logic of discovery, it seems simply to provide projects that are innovative and worth testing. Secondly, my assumption is that many of the same troubles would face project teams working in Newark. At the end of the first year, we taught this course on designing liberation technologies. We had a conversation with the students from the University of Nairobi we were working with. And we asked them, what was the most important thing that you, who all live in Nairobi, got from this course? And to a person, they all said, we got to the informal settlements, which we had never been in before. Now, I doubt very strongly that common citizenship in a society with deep class and racial inequalities, and now I'm thinking of the United States, creates the kind of proximity or mutual understanding that are relevant to success. To be more specific, suppose we decided to work in Newark instead of Nairobi. Really? All those problems are going to go away? Maybe they'll go away a little bit, but then the needs are greater. Anyway, it's a complicated question at that point. 
So I've tried to neutralize two facile answers to the question, why Nairobi rather than Newark? You might think that the needs settle it. Of course they don't. Or you might think that the likely success resulting from co-nationality settles it. Of course it doesn't. Neither answer seems so clearly compelling on reflection. The issue is complicated. But I've been avoiding the more obvious argument, the straightforward normative argument in, in favor of Newark over Nairobi, that we, by which I mean co-nationals, which is not true of everybody in our course, by the way, that we owe more to people in Newark than we do to people in Nairobi. I say that this is straightforward, though I don't mean that everyone agrees. Cosmopolitans argue that at the most fundamental level, everyone has the same basic moral entitlement to be treated as an equal, and that fundamental moral entitlement makes them uneasy about the assertion that we owe more to co-nationals. But cosmopolitans also recognize that the fundamental entitlement to be treated as an equal does not come close to deciding most questions of political morality. We stand in countlessly many special relationships to other people, including the special relationship of co-nationals. Special concern may be owed within these relationships without compromising fundamental moral equality. In the case of co-nationals, we have special obligations owing to particular kinds of reciprocity that hold within a particular society, and also because of the special demands of supporting the political institutions that respect and protect our basic entitlements as equals. So even the cosmopolitan might say that the case for working in Newark instead of Nairobi may be that it's a way of acting on the special concern owed to other members of our political society, thus of pr promoting the justice of our own society, the relevant hour being for me, Americans. But for reasons that I've explained elsewhere, I won't go into here, I think that we owe more to others outside our country than a humanitarian concern in the face of emergencies and disasters. And the question is how to discharge that more. There's no exact answer. Broad obligations require judgment. In my own case, I find Nairobi compelling because it mixes great needs, truly insulting poverty, and associated uh, restricted opportunities, with large opportunities for improvement because of the universities, the tech sector, and very deep mobile penetration, together with a political system that, while deeply corrupt and unstably democratic, nevertheless leaves space for innovation and some room for hope. In short, I think there are morally compelling needs of great urgency there, together with sufficient promise to make some difference to addressing them with the mix of mobile for development and human-centered design. So it's a suitable place for discharging the natural duty of justice. Well, as you might guess from my you know, on the one hand, on the other hand, on the third hand, the fourth hand style of presentation, I don't have a large conclusion, but some summary thoughts. So it may be that I've consumed too much Silicon Valley Kool-Aid, but I do think that Mobile for Development shows some promise as a way of addressing certain kinds of injustices. But I also think it's essential to discipline techno-enthusiasm with methods that are attentive to the lives and sensibilities of users. Moreover, I think that that attention needs to play a role in framing challenges, not simply in 
executing them with a compelling user interface. I find promise in human-centered design as such a method, both because of its focus on starting with users rather than on starting with solutions that then get tailored to users, and because it fosters confidence in a general ability to innovate. I don't have compelling evidence that it has the desired effects, but I think the case is good enough. That was last night's theme. As for the challenges to work, to the effort to work at the intersection between mobile for development and human-centered design, I think the four that I've mentioned are serious. But I also think, for the reasons that I've discussed tonight, that those challenges can be met, anyway, met sufficiently to support the reasonable hope that the efforts will come to something. And not just something, but enough to make the effort worth it. But meeting those challenges requires taking them seriously in the conception and in the detailed execution of the effort, which is itself understood as a working prototype. More generally, it comes down to this. When I hear gushingly enthusiastic stories about the latest techno solution to a large human development issue, and I hear that often in my neighborhood, I reach for my reason. Real problems don't yield to facile inventiveness. But then I pause. I pause because it's easy to be a critic. And ease of criticism aside, the terribly sad fact is that countless reasons Many of them very good reasons speak in favor of a passivity born of skepticism. Passivity even in the face of grinding insults to our fellow passengers to the grave. So it comes down to a judgment call, a choice between a tempered hopefulness that may seem naive or a knowing but morally anxious pessimism. I don't have that hard a time choosing, and uh, I hope you don't either. Thank you. Thank you. We have a little over 20 minutes for questions. Um, yes, let's, let's see. Uh, there's a lot of the usual suspects. I'm, I'm, uh, I want to give others a try before I give my colleagues a try. Look, look, you didn't ask a question last night, did you? I, no, so I, you count as it contextually not the usual suspect. I mean, I'm trying to be your friend here. You get you I'll, Since he's also my head of department, I'll let him get first. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but, yeah. Uh, uh, he signs that, the checks. Yeah. Now no, the pressure is on. Um, so I'm, I'm sort of thinking, you know, when I looked at that email yesterday, there was obviously a sense of resentment there, yes. right? And now I was thinking, you know, maybe you could say, well, on balance, what we're doing is a good thing, right? But that's not to say that there's no ground for that resentment. Um, and right. I'm sort of thinking, you know, where, where does that resentment come from? And is there some sort of justification for it, right? Now, of course, you know, there's all kinds of details here, like our legs were going to be broken, right? Yeah. But, um, 
I'm, I'm thinking that's that, bad. We're, yeah, that's yeah, bad. No, I just want to find common ground before I. Um, yeah, yeah. So, but here are sort of three three thought, thoughts that kind of yeah. point towards you know some form of exploitation, or maybe just yeah. just saying that there is some justification yes. to the resentment. Yes. I mean, yeah. you're doing things together with people who are at a very different level of 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 of, of, of income, really. You know, a different level of. of um, and so I think if you lock yourself into a common fate through some kind of project, immediately there is this kind of equity concerns that come in. And, and of course, you know, your life in Stanford is completely different from, from yeah. their lives and right. in, 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 in the settlements. Right. And then there is a second thing I think that comes in, that is that you know, there's sort of a, a lack of, of sharing goals, really. I mean, there is a shared goal, but you know, on the one hand, it's about, you know, building that CV, and the other people are just trying to get some some clean water, and there yeah. is just, you know, a sort of disconnect yeah. really of, yeah. of the yeah. goals, and it's right. a little bit like like you know, doing a movie in, in in India and saying, oh, it's better for everyone. Well, yeah, yeah but you know, one person is on the yeah. red carpet in the baftas, and the other person is. Yeah. You know, having food and it's yeah. kind of yeah. different. And then the third thing, and that's you know my last yeah. comment is that I think there is also a resentment because there is a there is a difference in the risk that is being <laughs> taken. And I'm thinking of this movie of you know of gods and men, and there the people actually you know they they decided to stay, or, although they could have been lifted out of the dangerous situation. Yeah. But of course, most of us, if things get really hot in these settlements, we say you know lift us out of here, yeah. um, we're gone. And, and people resent that. Yes. They feel like, you know, I was in a common project with you. I'm assuming the risk, and you're not assuming any of the risk. So, right. so all of these things are problematic, but at the same time, you can make them problematic and still think, you know, on balance, it's a good thing yes. that we do. But this yes. is a justified resentment. Yes. Um, I, I think I agree with everything that you said. And um, it's not about, as you said, it's not really about exploitation, which is the charge that I was addressing. Um, but you know, the, I I could have um, addressed the one that you're stating now, and you know, with sufficient time, I would have found subtle things to say in response to it uh, that would have diffused. But uh, but I hope not, because I think uh, I think it, it's absolutely right that there is. Um, a, a kind of I, I, justified resentment may, I'm not sure that, I, but and it's something like justified resentment for the reasons that you uh, mentioned. But I wanted to, but you might think that because of the very same circumstances that you describe, you have exit options. There's not really a shared fate. There may be a shared, very focused project. Uh, and income levels are very different, you might think that those circumstances which provide the focus for the justified resentment also inevitably lead to exploitation, that is to some, you know, to, to a kind of taking unfair advantage. And, I, and, and I'm just resi I'm resisting that idea that it leads to the taking unfair advantage. And the reason that I think it's important to resist that is because um, there is the, I mean, justified resentment 
is the kind of attitude that you have when you are it's not the attitude of a passive you know victim it's the attitude of an agent who objects to circumstances and 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 uh, what I'm trying mainly to convey is that this the attitude that I think underlies the exploitation charge is that the organizations and the people in these settlements are basically supine victims who are living lives of misery and I think that's an objectionable uh, that's an objectionable attitude so but but that there is justified resentment I think is right and uh, and it also all the circumstances that you just described not only yield an attitude of justified resentment, but also make it very hard to make projects work. Absolutely right. But there are things that you can maybe try to do something to try to make the project work despite that. And I just want to, one last point on this, on, because I think it really matters to me that the projects work. And when I, the pro, part of the projects working is that they become projects of organizations in the informal settlements, that they are not projects of, uh, that remain under the control of the people who came up with the idea. And that's built into all of them. And if they didn't become projects of those organizations, then I think there was probably something wrong uh, with them. Um, I, I, I don't know if that, does that, yeah. Question over there. Uh, yes, uh, Joshua. Um, yeah. um, do you feel that the uh, human-centered design um, projects that you have have uh, just relevance for the underprivileged societies, or do you see them having application for privileged societies? And if so, what are the learnings that are being taken back to Stanford, for example, as a privileged society in terms of the tenets of human-centered design? Most of the projects that, that come out of the design school, I'm sorry, for, but I just want to be clear on this, most of the projects at, the design, at Stanford's design school, these human-centered design projects, are not about, uh, are not focused on uh, low-income countries. Well, that's my question. So then in a way, then, uh, if the people in Kibera uh, felt that they were equal yeah. in the human-centered piece of it, yeah. if you see what I mean, yeah. then maybe that goes directly to the resentment issue. Um, you know, what, what is their contribution to, uh, to Stanford? That's, um, the, that's the point. You know, what, 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 what are the learnings being taken back to Stanford in that regard? I, I, if any, I don't know. Or, or how you're dealing with that. That's really my question. Um, the learnings that I'm taking back are the, uh, that I'm taking back are the ones that I've been presenting here, which I think are, w th these would be relevant uh, points. The ones that I'm describing here would be relevant uh, if we were doing things in... Uh, um, Newark as distinct from Nairobi um, and uh, may, they might be relevant I, uh, if we were doing stuff in uh, I, I mean I find the idea loathsome but doing a project in Palo Alto So I, I just want to give others a chance yeah. to get involved, thank you um, yeah, the You haven't been to Palo Alto The gentleman right over here answer to the question. Uh, in uh, black jacket and blue shirt Yep Thanks, Joshua. That was a fascinating talk. Thank you. And uh, the question I wanted to come back to was one that maybe was a subtext, at least it certainly seemed to me, with the topic of institutions. Yeah. 
And that's a, the question of politics. Yeah. Because I wonder whether how much of the HCD approach really engages with questions of politics yeah. and power. Yeah. And whether some of the experimental approaches are actually could be charged with it's cementing the status quo but finding small ways forward. And obviously others such as Larry Diamond have talked about liberation technologies as being the, yeah. the black box for political change and the Arab Spring and yet we see yeah, military regimes still very much in power. I'd be interested to hear more about where those differences in, yeah. in, those, in those, yeah, where those differences are. Um, the stuff about it, the, the futility concern is, uh, I, I think that um, it's a, a real, that's the challenge that I meant to be addressing, not subtextually, but textually. Uh, in the discussion about futility. Um, and uh, my, uh, I think most of either RCT field experiments and most human, I, it's, a, it's an open question about human-centered design, but I, I'm prepared to say human-centered design projects generally, like RCTs, um, have to have, you know, case of RCTs, uh, uh, randomized control trials, um, randomized control trials, yeah. Um, <laughs> somebody was asking, uh, RCTs. Uh, um, they uh, focus on things that you can, that are sort of, you know, can be very, very subject to variation in a kind of modular way. And you know, lots of things aren't subject to variation. Macroeconomic policy is not subject to that kind of uh, variation. So there are lots of things that I think this method is inappropriate for. What I resist is the idea, first of all, that the consequence of that is that the projects have, uh, have a built-in modesty of effect, because I think the effects can be fairly large. As I mentioned with the case of two years versus one of uh, uh, deworming, that's the equivalent of, an in of income growth that you get for from four years of 4.5% growth, and nobody knows how to produce that with a magic wand. Uh, and also, I think uh, I have the speculation, and it, I don't want to everything to depend on it, but the speculation that one of the things that makes people accept you know, bad circumstances, including bad institutions, is that there is a kind of passivity that's born of fatalism. And I think that, this, that projects of this kind do uh, speak against that. So you can have policy variation that, though is focused and modular, has big effects. You also can have some kinds of institutional variation. I mentioned before that this was not an RCT. This was a, um, a, um, a natural experiment, which was about the uh, composition, of, the gender composition of uh, leadership of local councils in uh, India. Um, uh, that's an institution, but it had big effects on what kinds of public goods were being provided when women were the heads of the village councils. There's a lot more uh, money that was invested in water rather than in roads. It's big policy variation. Um, uh, and, uh, and then there is this possibility of igniting a, a, a you know, political activity by undercutting that um, uh, passivity born of fatalism. So I, I think it's a fair challenge 
that you're neglecting politics and power. But I, I think there are some ways to meet it anyway, some ways to meet it sufficiently much as to make the work worth doing. I'm just repeating what I said there, though, and it didn't satisfy you the first time around. Not a, I have, I have, I'm sorry, I have several of uh, my esteemed academic colleagues chomping at the bit, and I will give the bit to them in a moment, but uh, see, these are public lectures, so are there any non-LSE people who want to throw out a question to, to Professor Cohen? Uh, right over here. I know life, you're also not LSE, but come on. You're just you know what he say. meant, I, Come on know. now. Come on now. You'll get it in a moment. Yeah. Hi. Uh, yeah, I really enjoyed the talk. Um, I thought the, uh, the examination, very honest and uh, thorough examination of the issues was refreshing. A um, couple of thoughts. Was it more refreshing in its honesty or its thoroughness? <laughs> Actually, both. Actually, both. Um, Thank you. Yeah, a couple of thoughts. Firstly, I find, also found myself agreeing with almost everything. Um, I agree it's you know, very complex. If, if you want to do good in the way that you do, could it be argued that um, you have to put your energy somewhere? So you're putting, you and your organization are putting a lot of energy in and getting uh, some results, but and you, know, you could debate how much. Yeah. Would it be better, for example, I, I'm showing my own interest here, but would it be better, for example, if you put all your energy, for example, into urging your own government to reduce its military spending? Um, and you may, you may think, what's the connection? But <laughs> so, so the U.S. spends uh, far, far more on military expenditure than any other country. So, yeah. with that yeah. saving, yeah. and I'm not suggesting I, I, I that think I, he, actually, I think he understands the core point, yeah. and he's he's now chomping at the bit. Oh, so yeah. okay. just, no, no, no. But, but I'm not saying that. Yeah. I'm advocating that. No, no. But I'm I, just. Yeah, yeah. Thinking no, out it's like, a great question. I wrote a book in 1986 called. Inequity and intervention. Uh, it was on the issues that you, uh, on, on the issues that you described. It was it, uh, um, and it was uh, about the relationship between, uh, at the time, intervention. The issues were focused on Central America. And it was about the relationship between the federal budget. So, so I, I, if I, I have, no, um, would it be better to spend my time on that? I don't know. Um, Pardon my language, but right now that feels like pissing uphill. The main effect of which is you get your feet wet. Um, so, but I think it's a completely worthy expenditure of time. I'm not sure that it's a better uh, expenditure of time, and I don't think that it would have very much effect on uh, the kinds of you know expanding opportunities in uh, the places that I'm. Uh, working in now, but if somebody was spending all their time doing that, I, I wouldn't criticize them at all. As I said, when it comes to you know discharging this, you know, natural duty of justice, I think it requires some judgment, and there are lots of places where people could expend their energy, and I think that would be a worthy one. Yeah. Could I ask one more? So, completely sorry, separate? I'm afraid we have we have quite a queue. So, um, Leif and I are over there, non LSE. <laughs> 
Josh, you really made a compelling case for human-centered design. Yeah. And it was so compelling, I was wondering if you would be willing to extend it to an additional program which would respond to some of the concerns yeah. of the questioner in black. Could you, could you use the same approach for something like citizen-centered design? So you'd still use a mobile platform, yeah. but in this case you'd have Stanford students and the interdisciplinary faculty looking for apps you yeah. put on a mobile platform yeah. that would provide another essential good not clean water, but yeah. in this case, a more responsive government, which yeah. is also yep. you know, yep. really important for all sorts of opportunities. So yep. there could be an app, you know, how to, how to run a good protest march, or you know, how to all get together and send the same text to your representative. Yeah. Or you know, we're gonna spend some time looking at how it worked in Tahrir Square, and we're just gonna do it over there. Now, yeah. when I say that, I feel myself thinking, boy, that's pretty implausible that yeah that Stanford would do that, but then I thought, why? And you know, there's a few reasons that don't seem to be the reasons why. Here's one reason that we would not be a good reason, is we lack the expertise, but that's not true. I mean, you've got great knowledge of political theory, people you know have great knowledge of institutions and political movements, people you know and people you are have knowledge in labor organization, even starting political parties. So the expertise is there, okay, well, maybe there's a principled objection to getting in, involved in Kenyan politics, but your response to the second yeah, objections yeah. shows that there's no principled objection, and, and your response to the previous questioner shows that you, you really do hope to have good effects in Kenyan politics by doing human-centered design. So why not just go for the politics right off with yeah. citizen-centered design? The last thing I thought of is, boy, it's, it's pretty unlikely that this fancy institution would want you to get involved in Kenyan politics because they would get their fancy brand wrapped up in very poor country and in, in, in yeah. poorly governed country and might, things go, might go wrong and might, it, might, it might damage the brand. But if it really is a matter of yeah. Yeah. justice, yeah. Yeah. what's going on yeah. here, then the brand of the fancy institution yeah. might not be an overwhelming consideration. So, yeah. so that, why not? So yeah, why not? Yeah, a couple of things. I think there are going to be four coming, but maybe it's only three. We'll see. First of all, I just want just a, a thing about clarification. Um, uh, it's not a feature of human-centered design or design thinking that it has anything to do with mobile technology or any other technology at all. That happens to be the focus in our course, and it's in a certain sense makes it foreign to design thinking. We get accused by some people at the D School of saying, by, they say something like, oh, I see, you know what the solution is, mobile. And so what we do in our courses, we say, start with mobile as a default setting. Uh, and, but if the project leads you someplace away from mobile, that's fine. You don't have to. And we do get non-mobile projects in the course. But that's just a that's a not really essential to the thing that you're asking. Um, I think there are. Uh, this goes to a point that we discussed at uh, dinner last night. I think if you do focus on mobile, um, then there are some things that we have pretty good reason to think that mobile is good for. That mainly reducing the costs of information. And there are some kinds of political problems where, you know, reduced information, easier access to information are going to be pretty helpful uh, in exposing some kinds of corruption, arguably, um, in exposing uh, flows of revenue uh, in the resource cases that you uh, work on. Um, and there is uh, a there, there's a project that is going to be 
coming out of probably coming out of the design school that it's going to focus on uh, applying design thinking to issues about political accountability. I don't see any. There's no hurdle in principle to using design thinking to address those issues. My big concern about uh, or source of skepticism about mobile and politics is that I think politics is not mostly about information. Um, you know, it's about pers- you know, there's a lot of stuff that's about persuasion in politics. And I just think that the there's no I don't see a, really any evidence at all. Um, you know, Ken Banks and I have talked about this. I don't see very much evidence at all that um, that that, um, that mobile is uh, very is helpful at doing that. And that's why I this is where to go back to the earlier point. I disagree with you know my friend and colleague Larry Diamond who. I mean, I think all this, you know, the idea that there was a Twitter revolution in Iran is bullshit. It's ridiculous. I mean, there was a Twitter reporting on Twitter to outsiders, but there was no, it was like saying there was a, you know, the, you know, the French resistance was the Twitter revolution. It's about as plausible. That's not where the politics comes from. And I don't, and, and I think I'm, I'm pretty skeptical about uh, the importance of, you know, social media in the Arab political uprisings of a year ago. This is a contested empirical issue, but it's because I think that, you know, what, what you, I just don't think that, so user-centered design, human-centered design, yes, as applied to certain kinds of political issues about holding officials accountable and exposing corruption, and there's a lot of stuff that's going on about that, and there is a project that may start up at the design school that uh, does that. More expansively about politics, I have the skepticism that comes from the fact that, about mobile and politics, it comes from the fact that mobile is good for this reducing the cost of information and as a device for persuasion, which is really what's important in politics. I'm much more skeptical. Uh, longer story, but that, I think that was three points or seven. I forget which. Thank you. I, I know there are, there are more questions. Uh, unfortunately, uh, we should also end it on time. Let me say that uh, you have a chance to refute skepticism about the power of Twitter by, uh, by tweeting about tonight's lecture using, please use the hashtag, makes us very excited, LSE Conte. Um, but uh, you really gave us something to tweet about, Josh, and I think that's what we, uh, we owe you thanks for that. Thank you very Thank much. You. Thank you.